Welcome to Farmgate, I'm Finlow Castain. The UK Agriculture Bill passed its third reading and has gone off for royal assent. But although the principles have passed through Parliament, much of the detail remains uncertain. There's also deep concern about whether UK environmental and farm animal welfare standards will be sacrificed on the altar of bilateral trade deals. Today I'm finding out where we are in November 2020 with UK agricultural policy reform. I'll be speaking to the Shadow Farming Minister, Labour's Daniel Zeichner MP, to Vicky Hurd, Head of Sustainable Food and Farming Policy for Sustain. But first off, I spoke to Simon Hoare, Conservative MP for the rural constituency of North Dorset. These interviews were recorded in the run-up to the final debates on the Agriculture Bill in the House of Commons. Simon, thanks for joining me. The UK Agriculture Bill is in its final stages. There's been an unusually unified effort, I would say, by NGOs, farmers, MPs and consumer organisations to persuade the government to accept amendments to ensure that food imports meet British environmental and farm animal welfare standards. You even tabled an amendment yourself. But these amendments have been rejected. Now, in the Commons, you warned the government against creating an unlevel playing field. Has it done so? No. And I think this is the um, anxiety and suspicion that um, a number of colleagues uh, across the House have, which is uh, part of the government narrative has been um, standards are going to be maintained. Things which are currently illegal will continue to be illegal for invitation uh, purposes. Uh, You've got nothing to worry about. Full stop. And then the second sentence is, and we can't accept these amendments because they will tie our hands in trade negotiations. You can't have it both ways. And I think the basic problem that we've got here are warm words and good intention from the government, which we would all support, when we then ask them to effectively put their money where their mouth is, put it on the face of the bill, make it clear to remove any suspicions, they are um, resolutely reluctant to do so. And that, I think, can only amplify uh, the level of suspicion and concern um, that is held. And you mentioned there, you know, the commitment that the government's made and, and you know, from 2016 onwards, really, certainly from the time that Michael Gove uh, took over as Secretary of State at DEFRA, uh, and then, you know, beyond that with George Eustace um, now being the Secretary of State, they've not just been warm words, they've been, you know, really hot words, they've been very strong. And, and you yourself talked about the cast iron guarantees um, that the, the government has given time and again on food and import standards. But trust in the government seems to be in very short supply on this. Uh, and, and even when you talk there, you almost sound like an opposition MP saying, look, come on, you've got to put your money where your mouth is. Yeah. Why, yeah. Why, why is that? Why is that well, so important? And why is trust so short? Well, I, I, nobody knows why, why they're not doing it. I mean, you're, you're right to point to the excellent work that um, Michael Gove did at DEFRA, and, and indeed, did, as did um, Andrea Leadsom, which was to say, we need to build when we're carving out a whole new suite of UK agriculture policy. We need to build a very broad coalition. And the Agriculture Bill was commanding support, you know, from the Soil Association, the Wildlife Trusts, the NFU, the Country Landowners Association, Compassion in World Farming, a whole raft of NGOs and lobby organisations saying that in broad terms, um, the government is getting it right and is on the right track. It's just on this issue of standards, we seem to be frittering away that reservoir of goodwill, support and engagement, which um, successive secretaries of state have, often against the odds and against prediction, built up for its vision of how British agriculture is going to look 
following leaving the, the European Union. It is staggeringly bad politics. And we are, as a, as a Conservative Party and Conservative government, ceding ground to opposition parties, which has traditionally been ours. I, I mean, I, I frankly find it perplexing. It seems to me that, as you say, it would have been something very straightforward for the government to do. Conservatives from um, rural <coughs> backgrounds right across the board have been calling for this, uh, and, you know, as well as, as opposition MPs. Neil Parrish, the chairman of the EFRA committee, has been calling for this. It strikes me that the, the single reason that the government isn't doing it is because it doesn't want to have its hands tied uh, when it's negotiating trade deals, which on one hand seems reasonable, but at the same time, it kind of suggests that the government is really much more nervous than it says in public about actually delivering those trade deals in a timely fashion. Well, I, I think there's two things. Uh, first, of, first of all, um, I think that uh, one of the upticks uh, now as a result of sort of being free of the EU agriculture policies and the like is that the UK can now be, as we've been on other issues, modern slavery, slavery in the past, you know, factory reform, all these sorts of things, we should be and can be a beacon of excellence, um, a global leader uh, in, in these important matters. And that seems to be an opportunity that we seem to be ducking. I, I, I would challenge one premise, however, in your question, if I if I may respectfully. And I think that post-COVID, actually it's wrong to refer to post-COVID, isn't it? Is But since COVID sort of uh, hit us, um, what had been, I think you'd be right to say, had been a singularly uh, rural MPs preserve of interest has now become much wider as people saw fragility in international food supply chains, as people saw panic shopping and the like. The, the role of food production in this country, I think, is now better understood. So, so I think these issues of food security have become recognised and important uh, across the commons, irrespective of what type of constituency you are representing. That was Conservative MP Simon Hoare. While in Parliament, the Labour Party has challenged aspects of the Agriculture Bill, its opposition has been less full-throated than on many other issues. I asked Shadow Farming Minister Daniel Zeigner whether Labour supports the shift to public payments for public goods, the backbone of the UK Agriculture Bill. Broadly we do, because we think the climate emergency is absolutely significant. We think the biodiversity crisis is significant and we think that that cruise system of payments um, through the common agricultural policy important though it was over many years and i'm not one of those who always rubbishes everything around the cap but it was of its time and what we need now is something different but and there's a big but alongside this um, that we think that unless standards are protected, either in the Agriculture Bill or the Trade Bill, it will have a, uh, a pretty dramatic effect on British agriculture, food production and food security. And we are suspicious of the government's intentions, because if you look at the Agriculture Bill, you look at the change in which way in which um, farmers are going to be supported and the very strong incentives um, for people to come out of farming, it all adds up to me to back up that um, leaked comment from one of the government's advisers 
that why do we need to produce food anymore in this country? Why can't we just import it from elsewhere? And I think um, that is absolutely wrong for the country. I think British people don't like it. And I think it goes some way towards explaining why a million people signed the NFU petition. Now, you mentioned food security there, and this is an issue that you raised with me, I think, during one of the Agriculture Bill committees. Food security has changed. It's not simply about volume anymore. It's not simply about keeping prices low, but actually it's looking at the way that our relationships, our trade relationships, around the world work and the way that our our own land is able to produce food. Do you think that this bill is going to put us in a position to have food security in the future? And if not, where are, where are the flaws? What needs to change? It's a very, very big question. And of course, people interpret the term as food security in a number of different ways. One of the things that we were critical of was the government's initial plan to have a, a report on this once every five years. Now, they're bent on that in the House of Lords, compromised on three years. But there's a big question. I mean, we'd, obviously, we've never been entirely food secure. Um, Tim Lang writes very eloquently on this, but we're somewhere around 60% maybe. Um, Tim says we should be going much higher to 80%. I think we can all agree that we should be growing more of our fruit and veg here if at all possible. I think this is certainly worth having a much bigger discussion about how we get that balance between environmental sustainability, security, affordability for people. I don't think the government's got the mix right at the moment. Do you think that there are those within government who um, fear that a public payments for public goods model will result in less food being produced and that potentially that food may become more expensive and therefore uh, the preserve of more middle class households and that they're seeking to, to, to ensure food security for poorer people by engaging in trade deals that perhaps allow in those foods at lower standards. Do you think that they're deliberately setting up a two-tier system or is there just a danger that that might arise? Well, I think an awful lot of people on the government benches don't understand what's going on, quite frankly. Tory backbenchers, some of them who represent, many of them who represent rural areas and who really ought to have a better grasp of this, I don't think have seen the danger. And I think your analysis is right. I think there are some in government who think that actually it'd be much better to be getting much more food more cheaply from Brazil, Argentina in future. And uh, that on on one level would deliver what some of the Brexiteers promised, which was even cheaper food. But there are others, and I would consider myself very much in this group, who would say that's not the right way to be going, that we should actually be looking to produce a much more sustainable food production system in our own country. And of course, trading, of course, trading, because we're never able to produce everything. But trying to produce more locally would go, I think, with the grain of where many people do want to go to. And I think there is a battle between uh, people like Liz Trust, international trade, and people at DEFRA. I fear Liz Trust is winning out. Daniel Zeichner. The issue of bilateral trade deals and how they affect agricultural policy is critical. And the broad coalition of support for agricultural reform has been significantly undermined by the government's refusal to accept amendments to ensure that food imports meet British environmental and farm animal welfare standards. I asked Vicky Hurd just how much of a threat is posed by these new potential trade deals. The trade deals are a huge obstacle in the way of getting some of the wins that we could have got from Brexit, because it will undermine the new direction of travel for UK farm policy, 
by making UK farmers compete with lower standard produce coming in and flooding in. And that we know the US and Australia want to export here with products that are different standards to us. And, you know, we that is proving a huge problem for, for people feeling any positivity about Brexit at all. You know, there was going to be some, you know, some good useful outcomes in terms of farm policy, but they'll be undermined. I've never in 30 years of working on farm policy seen such a coalition of cross-party, cross-organisational, big farming organisations talking to small environmental, you know, everything, everybody's saying this. And as you say, backbench MPs are calling for it. I fear that the government majority will stop us getting the two remaining trade amendments that the Lords have repeatedly put back in the bill. But there might be a chance of some concession, um, which the government will will be working on now. I'm very worried about that, that it's going to be way too weak, um, something to do with um, scrutiny which will not be enough. So I think this is going to be a long run running problem. And when produce starts flooding in, the government will find a a very dissatisfied consuming public. We recorded this programme before the agriculture bill passed its final stages in the House of Commons. But Vicky Hurd was right. The trade amendments were rejected. And as a concession, the Trade and Agriculture Commission was put on a statutory basis in part to allow scrutiny of trade deals before they become law. However, for many, the Trade and Agriculture Commission has been controversial since its inception, with concerns about transparency and membership. I asked Daniel Zeichner how Labour would have constructed the Commission differently. Well, we wouldn't have we wouldn't have gone down that route. We would have put those standards into law. You know, some people will say, well, you'd be constraining yourselves for the future. And the answer is yes, we would, because we're not prepared to have chlorine-fed chicken or hormone-fed beef coming in. Um, And that is the difference between us, essentially. So I think that's how we would have dealt with it. And do you think the Commission is going to be able to achieve anything positive at all? Or is it just going to be a complete waste of everybody's time? Well, it it may throw up one or two interesting things. I mean, to to my astonishment, I've actually heard people saying they're also beginning to talk about Labour standards, which as a Labour politician, it would be very welcome because... WTO rules, we all want to become a bit more well-versed in, in, in trade law and trade standards, are very, very narrow. And part of the issue is it's about the final product, not how the product is produced. And of course, as, as I say, as a Labour politician, I would like us to start looking at not just the animal welfare standards and environmental standards and health standards, but those standards which apply to the people who produce them. That's a very radical departure um, and it would have big implications. I'm afraid we are still living, even within the EU, you look at the the conditions that people work in in some of the fruit and vegetable production systems um, in the Mediterranean. Frankly, we should not be proud of that. So we are still, just as we import very cheap labour to do our fruit and vegetable picking and a a lot of the work in the agricultural sector, There is a lot still to be resolved in terms of not just an environmentally sustainable food production system, but also a socially just and fair food production system for the future. The concern around standards is that lower quality food imports will undermine the work of UK food producers. I asked Vicky Hurd if lower quality food really is likely to make it into the UK. Well, there won't be much to stop it. Um, and there'll be an awful lot of fudging of words and what do you mean by equivalence and standards and this beef is the same as the beef we produce here, even though it's, you know, there, there's going to be a lot of um, confusion, I think. But I think we will see that because that is the government going global as opposed to having a deal, a really good deal with its closest neighbour, where we had 
positive relationships with our buyers over in Europe, we're going to have to do all sorts of things to allow buyers overseas to access our market in order to access their market. It's going to be very complicated and messy. The bill has a really positive heart at it, really. The um, paying for public goods and paying for sustainable productivity, animal health and welfare pathways, some really good stuff in it, as well as fair dealing regulation. All those things are really positive parts of the agriculture bill, which could be undermined, again, by trade deals that allow produce to flood into, into the market. So our farmers and our livestock rearers and our horticulture farms will not be able to compete um, with those farmers with all sorts of different lower standards, including lower labour standards. And our food producers won't be able to compete where you've got very different standards of production overseas. And so I think it could be under well undermined um, or it could be very expensive because we'll be having to pay a huge amount to farmers to stay in business when they can't actually make any money from their primary business producing food. So they'll have to be paid to protect the environment or just paid to be there. Um, so, you know, know, it's, it's a really um, unfortunate situation where we've got a, a good agriculture bill being undermined by trade policy. That's a bleak picture that you mm. paint. How do you think farmers are likely to respond? So, for example, will they simply struggle to stay within those supply chains that they're currently in? Mm. Will they just be forced to accept this undercutting, mm. a gradual reduction mm. in the prices that they're getting? Or do you think that there will be greater innovation in terms of supply chain, more cooperatives, yeah. more direct sales? I think you've nailed it there. And that's my sort of bright outlook is that we will see more cooperation between farmers to access markets, both direct to the consumer through really good, like better and fairer traders and through the procurement market into schools and hospitals and um, public procurement. So farmers are collaborating more and are going outside the current heavily concentrated market and retail market to reach customers in different ways. That That's really positive outlook. And it's actually been boosted by what's happened during COVID, where a lot of local and direct supply schemes and shorter supply chains have actually done quite well, very well. And people are realizing that they can actually get affordable as well as good produce from those farmers. I also think there's, there's a whole range of farmers and those that are, are really already invested in, in quality produce and protected nature have to some degree developed their markets in ways which will remain. It's, it's the large number of farmers that are commodity farmers that don't have any control over their supply chain, their prices, the deal that they get, who they, they will suffer. And I think, you know, what we need to do is make sure they have alternatives. Moving on from the issue of standards, there is also uncertainty about the way in which farmers will receive the payments for public goods, which are at the heart of the government's reforms. The environmental land management schemes are the primary mechanism for payments. I asked Daniel Zeitner exactly how he expected Elms to work in practice. I spent many hours quizzing Victoria Prentice in committee on how the environmental land management schemes would work. But actually, the more you look at it, um, the more complicated it becomes. And there's still no clarity on the various tiers of environmental land management scheme. In fact, it's clear that nothing is going to be in place for a while. So the government's talking about some, some intermediate measures. And much will depend upon whether that tier one scheme is really just a kind of SOP to um, which doesn't look that different from uh, the basic payment scheme, plus a, a little bit of um, environmental improvements alongside. 
in which case you haven't got the environmental improvements that people are looking for, or whether it really is much more rigorous, in which case um, I suspect it'll be quite difficult for a lot of farmers. Now, I've, I've found this idea, which uh, George Eustace and Victoria Prentice has been quite keen on promoting, that it's a cosy chat around the kitchen table between a farmer and um, an advisor. My sense is, in a lot of cases, that won't be a very cosy chat. That would be quite a difficult conversation, and farmers would feel very defensive because they have been stewards of their land for a long time. And to be told by someone from outside what they should be doing and how they should do it may well be well received in some cases, but I suspect in many cases it won't be, and that will be quite difficult. And then the whole process of what you're measuring, including whether you're going to establish baseline standards to start with, because exactly as has been said in much of the discussion, should we be paying um, money to people for doing what they always should have been doing? Surely you don't just pay people for not doing bad things. So a lot of this is still to be resolved. And my sense is that the experience in the past from countryside stewardship and so on is this is this is hard to persuade people to take up. Uh, alongside that, of course, all the rural development funding that used to do some of the, the larger scale, which look a bit more like the tier three schemes being proposed. I think exactly as you said, that will work for the people who have got the, the skills, the capacity, probably the scale to employ skilled people to make the bids, to do the negotiations. Basically, it is not going to work, I suspect, for an awful lot of family farms. At the moment, I think, I'm not sure that people have really grasped what's going to happen next year. I remember that, you know, 10% cuts payments immediately, and for slightly bigger farms, could be 25%. Remember, I was struck by even in the east of England, where I am, where people generally think farming is very profitable. Actually, if you take out the basic payments, uh, very large numbers of farms are really quite marginal. Now, I don't know, I can't predict how many people will come out. Um, I think there is a sense in which uh, the government would quite like to see, um, and this is why the incentive schemes are there for people to come out. They're hoping that younger people will be able to come in, and that would be a good thing. But I fear the more likely outcome is that people will just drop out altogether and the land will then be agglomerated with others nearby and intensified. We are facing a period of acute uncertainty, and I have a lot of sympathy for people um, who are just trying to get on and do their jobs and produce food, and in many cases, doing their best to do it in an environmentally sustainable way. But they're facing real, real difficulties next year. Daniel Zeitner, MP. Let's take a moment to consider the environmental land management schemes in more detail. Vicky Hurd from Sustain. They have announced that there are going to be three tiers and within each tier there will be a set of what they're calling at the moment standards. I think they're going to change the name and those standards would also have potentially three levels, basic, middle and high level and then you'll be able to go up the tiers in tier one and then in tier two it's more about sort of more ambitious environmental and public good delivery, working with your neighbours potentially, doing creation of habitats and features and supporting nature in in a bigger way. And then the final big tier is going to be about very large scale restoration of of habitats or large scale water uh, catchment area management with a a large land area involved. So those three tiers are going to have within them a whole set of specific things that you can be paid for doing on your farm and hopefully on a whole farm basis. So farmers will be able to think about the whole farm, all the assets, all the ways they can manage pests, soil, water and the crops in one big package delivering public goods as well as for the market. And do you think it will be possible for people to, uh, for farmers to reach the level of funding that they are currently receiving um, through the new Elm scheme? 
That is a big question. And I I can't at this moment say because what we've also not got into, we haven't got all the details, but we haven't got the budgets. And we certainly haven't got the budgets definitely for the next few years. The comprehensive spending review, which we're expecting around now, is now just a departmental one-year spending review. So we've only got one year of money secure, for, and that covers the first year of the pilot next year. So I think that's a big question you're asking. I very much hope so. We're all working very hard to make that the case so farmers can go forward with a decent income for public as well as private goods. I was very worried at the beginning of the whole Brexit process like four years ago about the, the potential huge loss of farms in this country. Small farms, medium-sized farms, even large farms that can't deal with the changes ahead. And I think that is still a real risk. What we've been saying is that there must be the proper outreach and training and demonstration, funding for facilitating farmers working together, funding for, for helping them to actually apply for funds so that we can get through this transition phase without a mass loss of, of farmers and an abandonment of land or amalgamation of farms, which will cause problems for nature. As we see when farms amalgamated, you lose features, you lose all sorts of assets on the farm for nature, and you lose jobs and incomes in rural areas. Um, so it's not just about elms, it's the, it's the whole farm policy that we need to look at, and it needs to, as I say, be available for all farmers. And, and I guess the way that it interacts with other government policy as well, and when I look through the land use report, for example, of the Committee on Climate Change, there is this this hope, this expectation that we're going to see really significant mm. tracts of land taken out and effectively planted with Sitka spruce. Yeah. You know, and are we likely to see those farmers who don't have the capacity to apply for the uh, public goods funding that's set up within the Agriculture Bill, you know, will just say, well, you know, the easy thing to do, I, at least I can get some money off this, and we're going to see great tracts of land planted with Sitka uh, with the impact that that has on biodiversity, on uh, runoff and flooding and, and all the rest of it. Yeah, I think there is a much better way to think about this than simply putting in loads of sick uh, plantations, which, as you say, don't have huge benefits for biodiversity. They can have economic outcomes. But what we could see instead on the uplands um, is a way of moving farms towards fewer but better livestock systems where they're also diversifying into other um, goods, for instance, agroforestry and um, silvoculture, where you're actually mixing livestock with trees and possibly with fruit trees, nut trees, um, also trees that provide some timber or um, biomass, but in a way that is sustainable and sustaining a mix of incomes for those farmers. So it's not entirely relying on, on sheep, some fewer sheep, but higher quality produce, but that will require investment in infrastructure as we all know abattoirs are few and far between we need to invest in sort of local abattoir and infrastructure for processing and milling capacity across the country so farms can actually do more local sales and more local processing and that goes for the uplands and the lowlands we there's a lot that needs to be done to, to mend what we've created in the uk finally vicky um what do we know about the new sustainable farming incentive i started hearing about the sustainable farm incentive a few months ago uh, sort of whispers and I'm still not that much clearer about how it's going to work. Some people talk about it being a bridge. Some people talk about it being a precursor to tier one of the environmental land management scheme. Some people talk about it as a recompense for the reductions in BPS that farmers are going to face. So it's basically giving the money back that they've had to have taken from them um, and possibly putting a few greening requirements on, on it. So it's, it's I'm getting very mixed messages. We should be hearing the end of November some more details. And I think there is a case for a transition scheme, but I think it should be a transition 
competition that is a, a sort of tier one light rather than something else. This is going to be very confusing. I, I'm confused and I'm in all the stakeholder meetings. So what are farmers going to think? We need something that is very clear in November saying the direction of travel, what farmers be able to do next year on the pilot and then in the three other years in the run up to 2024. Vicky Heard explaining some of the mechanics of ELMS and highlighting where uncertainty and complexity remain. Among the entirely reasonable concerns about standards and the delivery of ELMS, it is important to remember that the Agriculture Bill is ambitious and that its values are widely shared. So to end the programme, I asked Conservative Simon Hoare what excites him about the future of UK agriculture. Given our standards, given our provenance, given our climate, given the first-rate quality of our pasture-fed livestock, in terms of food exports, I think that there is a there is a golden opportunity to introduce uh, parts of the world to really great British food. And if that then has a byproduct of encouraging people to visit the UK to see these things at first hand as a boost to UK tourism, uh, that of itself is, is going to be a benefit. Get the standards issue right, then I think we have a really vibrant uh, future. I think uh, sort of farmers that I talk to, that they want to be investing, they they want to be looking at uh, at agrotech and other ways of improving how they farm. Nobody's kicking back against the environmental stuff. Uh, so we could see really, I think, a, a, a golden period of a, a boost to exports, a quality control in terms of imports, so, so um, markets aren't, aren't, aren't swapped. Significant improvements in things like air quality, um, soil quality, water management, and, and the like, which will play a, a really important part, not just, and I say this as a conservative, uh, not just in terms of dealing with issue, uh, pressing issues with regards to, to climate change, but conserving and preserving our agricultural landscape and all that that does to, to shape how Britain looks today for future generations. And that, I think, is hugely important and would be a great testimony to the success of an agriculture bill, which focuses quite properly on all of those issues. Simon Hoare bringing us to the end of this programme. I'd like to thank my guests, Shadow Farming Minister Daniel Zeichner, Vicky Hurd, Head of Sustainable Food and Farming Policy for Sustain, and Simon Hoare, Conservative MP for North Dorset. If you've enjoyed listening, please come back and listen to more. Tell your friends, like us, review us, and share our links. Farmgate is a partnership project for Farmwell and FAI Farms. We're funded by Sankalpa, and you can join the conversation on Twitter by searching for Farmgate Podcast. I've been Finlow Costain. Bye for now. Now.